Our text this morning will be Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Just one verse this morning. What I would like to do is read a bit of the context that comes before it. So let's begin by turning our attention to chapter 3, verse 17. And that will take us down through our text for this morning. If you would please give attention to the Word of God. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative. Philippians, beginning at verse 17 of chapter 3. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word. We ask, O Lord, that you would encourage us, equip us, that you would stir up in us love for our Savior. We ask, O Lord, that you would bless us by the living bread, living water of your word. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. We began last week looking at a series of characteristics of the church. Kind of a mini-series within a series. Characteristics of what the church is to be and is to look like. You recall last week Paul advised us that the church needs to be one that is Christ-focused that is pushing onward toward the call of Jesus Christ, looking to Him, not being distracted by our own desires, not being distracted by our own authority or our own moral standards, but rather to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, to seek Him, to imitate others as they imitate Christ, to provide an example and a guide to those who come behind us, to be laser beam singularly focused on Jesus. One of the things that is difficult in trying to keep focus upon an object, especially throughout the course of life, is to stay steady, to stay steadfast and stable, to not to wander off, to not to get off balance, to fall. And this morning I'd like us to see a second characteristic of the church, And that is that the church is to be steadfast. And if we think about it, using any human example that we can come up with in our minds, instability is a bad thing. Instability in patterns are bad for children. Have you ever tried 
to vary when lunch will be by about a half an hour different each day of the week. Monday it's 11.30. Tuesday it's at 12.30. Wednesday it's at noon. I see moms with raised eyebrows because that is chaos in the home, is it not? When are we going to eat? Why are we waiting so so late? Why are we eating so early? There's instability. We don't like instability in our jobs either, do we? One of the things that frightens us most is to hear that the economy is unstable. We don't know what's going to happen to our company. We don't know what's going to happen to our country. And so we are afraid. It's scary. It's dangerous. This is true also for the Christian in his life. To be unstable makes for a dangerous, frightening existence. It's true also in the church. If the church is not focused and stabilized by the Lord God, it becomes not a place of comfort. It becomes a place to be feared, where we don't know what someone will say about us. We don't know if we're doing the right thing. It's unstable. And so Paul will show us here from this one verse... I believe three things about stability and being steadfast. The first question that we will ask is, who is to stand firm? Who is it that is being called to stand firm by Paul in this text? And then the second thing we'll see is what it means to stand firm. We'll ask the question, what does it mean to stand firm? And once we know who it is that is to stand firm... And what it means to stand firm, we ask that most practical of questions, how do we stand firm? How do we do this? How do we manage it? Well, let's begin then first by looking, who is it that is to stand firm? Who is to stand firm in Paul's mind? The first characteristic of those who are to stand firm are the equipped. Those who are equipped to stand firm. And we get this from one of our favorite transition words in the Bible. That first word, therefore. And as good Bible students, you see that. And the first thing that you do when you see the therefore is you look back and you see what the therefore is there for. Remember, I told you one of my main jobs is to say the same things to you over and over again. This is the way you interpret the scriptures. And so Paul says, therefore, in light of this, because of this, my brothers stand firm. Okay, Paul, because of what? Therefore, from what? This is a mark of a transition from the beginning of the letter to the end. Paul is wrapping up. Now, Paul's content of wrapping up is tremendous. But you'll notice that Paul is a preacher because his in conclusion is a quarter of his letter. He's wrapping up, but he's reminding us of everything that he has said, and most specifically what he has laid out here in chapter 3. He is reminding us that those who stand firm are those who have participated in the great truths that he has stated. Who stands firm? Those whose citizenship is in heaven. Those who realize that God's kingdom reign is right now. It's not something they look forward to. It's something that they experience in their life at that very moment. They are equipped to stand firm because they know they are in the kingdom of God. They are traveling onward, upward, and inward. They are in the celestial city. And they are traveling to its consummation. Their citizenship is in heaven. And this is not simply those who are super Christians, who are apostles, or 
sons of the apostles. No, this is everyone who claims the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your citizenship is in heaven. It's also those who are eagerly awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we are equipped to stand firm, not only because we know that Jesus reigns right now, but we know he is returning to manifest that reign in power, to put down all injustice, to put down all sin, to put every wrong right. And so we stand firm, if you can picture this in your mind's eye, not as those who are standing on the walls of the fort, knowing that no help is coming, but longing and looking out, waiting for the cavalry to arrive, waiting for the victor to ride on his horse and declare that all is one and all his enemies are put down. And so we stand firm in the knowledge that Jesus reigns and Jesus is coming. We are equipped to stand firm. But we're not just equipped. We're not just fashioned with the ability to do things. No, there's more than that. Paul says, therefore, my brothers, those whom I love, my beloved, those are to stand firm who are the beloved. Notice that Paul here says, my brothers, You cannot help but hear the pastor's heart in Paul. We've seen over and over again Paul referring to the Philippians as brothers. I want to remind you, especially you ladies, that this term really means brothers and sisters, all of you all together. It's a comprehensive term to mean all of the people of God. But Paul puts a very personal touch on it. Do you notice he says, my brothers, whom I love, my beloved. Paul's not afraid to use personal pronouns. He wants them to know, to be aware that he has a personal relationship with them. He wants them to know that he is involved in the same struggle that they are. They are beloved of God, but they are Paul's beloved as well. Everything that he has advised them to do is because he loves them. And so when Paul tells them to stand firm, it's because he loves them. Not just because it's the right thing to do. And you see, that's the call of a minister of the gospel. To call you to repentance. To call you to faith. To call you to obedience. Not because it's simply the right thing to do. Not just because it's in the Bible. Although both of those things are true. It's because of a love for God's minister to his people. Desiring their best. Desiring that they grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul uses this term, not once, but twice. He repeats it. Actually, these phrases, whom I love and beloved, are the exact same word. They're just translated a bit differently for style. Maybe some of your translations have the same word. It's the exact same Greek word, form and all. And this term would have been something that would be familiar to the Jews. It was a term used in the Old Testament to describe those whom God had placed His saving, electing love upon. The beloved are those who are the beloved of God. So you see, Paul says, not only are you dear to me, you are dear to God, Philippians. Be ready for that. Take heart from that. And Paul says, I love you and I long for you. Now, we've said this before, that Paul's letter here is a very personal letter. 
it's so personal that sometimes he messes up his grammar. We've already seen a couple of occasions in which he invents words. This is another one. He takes a perfectly good verb to long for something, to want something, and he makes it a noun to describe the people. It describes the longing of his heart. It's kind of a homesickness, a tenderness that's born out from thinking about being home. It's the same type of word that Paul uses in Philippians 1 verse 8 when he uses it as a verb, when he says, I yearn for you. I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ. There is a pain of separation that Paul feels from the people of God. So those who are called to stand firm are not only those who are equipped, they are those who are loved both by God and Paul. There's another thing that characterizes those who are called to stand firm, however. They are also the commended. What do I mean by the commended? Those who are complimented, those who are encouraged, those whom Paul can say good things about. He commends them for where they are now. You'll notice he says that they are his joy, his crown. They are Paul's joy. Now, take a minute and think about that. Paul's joy is not his ministry. Paul's joy is not his success. Paul's joy is not the work that is going forward or what he has amassed, whether they be worldly things or spiritual things. Paul's joy are people. His joy is found in looking around and looking in the faces of his people and remembering experiences and seeing them grow. Paul's joy is in the people of God. Is that your joy? Do you take joy from looking at those in your family? Do you take joy from looking at others in other pews? Or is the only focus of your joy what has been accomplished, the things you can write down or place your hands around? You see, Paul says, my joy is in being with the people of God. I rejoice in you. You're not only my joy, Paul says. You're also my crown. Now, this word for crown is not the type of crown that you might think of. I can already imagine the younger amongst us drawing a picture of a crown in their mind's eye or maybe on the paper. You know, with the big spiky pointy tops and the jewels that a king would put on. No, this is not a kingly crown. There's another word for that. This is a crown, a wreath that was placed upon someone of honor. Oftentimes it was an athlete that won a race. It was those crown of leaves that you have seen woven with sticks and leaves and placed on the head of the winner of the race. But it was also placed on the head of someone who was meant to be honored. If you were to go to a banquet, the guest of honor wouldn't get a special plaque. They would get a garland crown to place upon their head. And that's what Paul says here. And it has a dual meaning. You see, because first, this crown reminds us of the feast-like joy of a festival or a banquet. Paul says, you are my joy and you are my source of rejoicing. But it's also that they are Paul's great reward. Paul looks out. He sees faces. And he says, God has blessed my work. My life is not in vain. I have labored and run the race. And how do I know that? Because you are my reward and crown. 
He can imagine in his mind's eye the slave girl that had the demon cast out of her. He can imagine in his mind's eye Lydia alone by herself by the river. He thinks about the Philippian jailer who is about to kill himself and he sees their growth in Christ and he says, you are my reward in Christ. These are the people who are called to stand firm. And it really is no different than you or me. We've all come through our own struggles. We have all sought to serve the Lord. We all have those who love us and we love. We are equipped just like the Philippians were equipped by the power of God and the Word of God. So we are called with the Philippians to stand firm. What does this mean? What does it mean to stand firm? The first thing that I think we need to get out of our mind is that it doesn't simply mean being immovable. It doesn't mean staying in one place and being afraid to take a step. Because after all, the church of God is an offensive weapon. We have seen this in the famous verse that says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is on the move against Satan. It is on the offense, seeing the kingdom of God built. But it does mean that we are to be firm in our convictions. We are to stand firm and withstand the assaults that Satan will send against us. So the first thing that standing firm means is that we are to cling to God. The beginning of the Christian life should inform its end. What do I mean by that? I mean, when you first came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you first realized that God was sovereign, that God was in control of everything, that God would indeed, as the hymn says, take care of you, when you first realized that, it was freeing and liberating. You wanted to be around God all the time. You wanted to study His Word with others. You wanted to tell others about Him. You wanted to learn more from Christian books. You wanted to commune in prayer with Him. You wanted to cling to God so tightly because having just come to Him, you might not have realized that no one can snatch you away from God. And the way that we avoid being snatched away is we cling. We see this even in children, don't we? It is amazing how tight the grip of a two-year-old can be, isn't it? They get their claws into anything, a tie, a coat, a shirt, flesh, when someone's trying to take them away from mom or from dad. They cling. You see, for the Christian, that kind of nature of clinging needs to be pursued throughout the entire Christian life. We don't reach a point where we no longer need God, where we no longer need to cling on to Him with our very life. Joshua talked about this in our readings a few weeks ago. He says in verse 23, he encourages the people of God to not mix with the other nations, to not to mention even the names of their gods, but to cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. Joshua says, you clung to him throughout the 40 years in the wilderness. Cling to him now. Paul puts it a little bit differently in the negative in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You see, you cannot have God on the one hand and demons on the other. 
You cannot have God for one time and yourself as your own authority for another. You must cling to God. Barnabas understood this. Do you remember what Barnabas means? That Barnabas is the encourager? That's what his name means? Barnabas preached at least one sermon that we know of. Do you know what the subject of his one sermon, the sermon of the encourager, was? He exhorted the people of God to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. One of the most important things that an encourager can tell you. So as I encourage you in your marriages, in your families, in your jobs, in the midst of an economy, I tell you to cling to the Lord, to remain faithful to Him, to be steadfast. This is where you will find happiness, truth. We cling to the Lord. And how do we do this? Well, the second way that we remain steadfast is we cling to the gospel. It is important, it is critical that we remain faithful to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul puts it in very stark terms in Galatians chapter 5. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Same word. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul says, if you are to stand firm, if we are to be a church that is steadfast, we must stand firm in the gospel. We must not add to it. We must not think it comes up short. We must not think that it only takes us part of the way. No, Christ has set us free that we might be free indeed, and we must stand in that freedom of the gospel. We must not go back to the law. We must not seek to put up a fence around ourselves to protect us from God. We must seek to serve God and Him alone. You see, you cannot serve two masters, our Lord says. For either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and anything else. This is the call to be faithful and to stand firm in the gospel. This is a very practical thing to think about. The question I would have for you is, is the gospel your first commitment? Here in church? In your home? In your life? Is the gospel your primary commitment? Is that the thing that you hold on to first? That you know that there is no way that you can cling to God without clinging to the gospel? No way that you can succeed in life without clinging to the gospel? No way that you can make it even through the day without clinging to the gospel. You see, when we cling to the gospel, our problems, our circumstances, our trials fade into the background. They don't go away, do they? But they fade into the background. And our focus is upon Jesus clinging to Him. We cling to God We cling to the gospel. And in order to cling to the gospel, we must cling to the truth. You see, the gospel is not fungible. The gospel is not Play-Doh that you can fashion into any shape that you like. The gospel is the truth of God. That apart from God, man is hopelessly lost in his sin, bound for eternal destruction. 
And but that God sent His Son to bear our penalty, to die a death upon the cross, after having lived a perfect life, and but for the Christian embracing Jesus Christ by faith, there is no hope. And so this morning, if you're saying to yourself, well, I can stay close to God. I like God. I'm a spiritual person. You say, well, I can even understand the gospel. Isn't that sort of do unto others as you would have them do unto you? Isn't it sort of be nice all the time? You must realize that you cannot cling to God and you cannot have the gospel unless you have the truth of the gospel. And this is critical because everywhere around you, there are those seeking to draw you away from the truth of the gospel. You see, the reason why the job of a pastor is to repeat to you over and over again things that you know is that people are constantly whispering in your ears the contrary. They're doing it at school. They're doing it at college. They're doing it in neighborhood groups. They're doing it at your job. And sadly, the Bible tells us that they even do it in church. They seek to draw you away from the truth of the gospel. And so, throughout the scriptures, we see not only Paul here, but we see Peter in his second epistle saying... In chapter 2, verse 14, that those who are unstable, those who are wells without water, wicked teachers, seek to draw away the people of God from God. And they seek to entice unstable souls. You see, that's who they latch on to. Those who are unstable, they're not sure of their standing with God. They're not sure of the truth of God. They're not sure that God has written the Bible. They're not sure that Jesus was God or that He rose from the dead. And they draw them aside. And you see, if we're going to be steadfast, we must cling to the truth of the Scriptures. It's why sometimes the Bible has difficult and hard things to say. Difficult to understand and hard to believe. Peter puts it this way. There are some things in them, that is Paul's writings, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. You see, what Paul has written here is so that you might be stable and steadfast and be able to resist those, that you might be, as Paul says, no longer children tossed to and fro by waves of doctrine, that you might not be caught in the cunning deceitfulness of the devil. This question then comes to you this morning. Do you love the truth? Do you love the truth about Jesus? I asked you before if you love Jesus. But do you love the truth about Jesus? Do you love everything you can know and find out about Jesus Christ? Do you love that He's God and man? Do you love that He's the second person of the Trinity? Do you love that He lived a perfect life? Do you love that He spoke in parables? Do you love that He ministered to His disciples? That's how you remain steadfast. You love the truth of Jesus Christ. Being steadfast means clinging to God. It means clinging to the gospel of God. It means clinging to the truth of the gospel of God. 
But it also means this. It means clinging to each other. You see, if we are to remain steadfast, we must be anchored in God. We must know God's truth, but we must also cling to one another. You see, in reality, what Paul has to say here in verse 1 is almost a summary form of what he says in chapter 1, verse 27. Turn back there with me if you would. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are what? (coughs) Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Word there for standing firm? Exact same word as what is in chapter 4, verse 1. Exact same word. The only difference is here in verse 1, it's a command. It's not a description. Do you see what standing firm means? It means standing firm and united, one to another. Because if we are united one to another, we become encouraged and we see God work. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verse 58, after that wonderful description of the resurrection and the description of how the believer will live forever with Jesus Christ, he moves then to them corporately and he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, sound familiar, that language? My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, we are to cling to one another, to cling to the work that God has given to us as the people of God. I was thinking about this this past week as one of the things that I will do sometimes as I have had a long day, I will sit for 30 minutes and, and flip through certain channels on the television. And there's not much worth watching on the television except for documentaries and now college football, but was flipping through and watching the military channel. And they have a show called Greatest Warriors or Deadliest Warriors or something like this. Maybe some of you have seen it. And what they do is they pit one warrior against another. They, they, they pit a Soviet um, a special service agent and a SEAL, and they see who had the better weapons and etc. And as I flipped through this particular day, they were describing who was the greatest warrior, the deadliest warrior between a ninja and a Spartan. And what they did was they, they showed what was going on, the Spartan thrusting his spear and he puts it into a big thing of jelly and it does this much damage and the ninja hits with his sword and the poof, the smoke, and they're going through all of this stuff. And after about 20 minutes, the uh, former Green Beret who was on the, the Spartan side, felt the Spartan was the most powerful, said, well, you're, you're not understanding one thing that's the main difference here between the ninja and the Spartan. And they said, well, what do you mean? And they said, the ninja fights alone. And he has to rely on being hidden and deception. The Spartan, they conquered their area of the world because they were all together in one huge mass with gigantic shields protecting one another. And on a given order, you couldn't even get at them to hit them with a sword because all you would see is a wall of shields. 
And then when they went on offense, they would all throw out their spears together and simply walk forward, and it was kind of like a rugby match. They would just hit the other army and push them backward. You couldn't even get at them. They were a solid, cohesive mass of army. That's a bit like what the Christian life can be like as we gather together as God's people. You see, we see God work through all of us, training us together to defend one another, to encourage one another, to work with one another. And you see, we stand fast and are immovable with each other. And so then the question comes to you. Are you building up those who are around you? Because if you're not, you're not standing fast. You don't stand fast alone. This is not a singular command. When Paul says, stand firm, it's a plural command. Paul calls us, as the people of God, to stand fast together. Well, we've now asked two questions. The first is, who is to stand firm? The second is, what does it mean to stand firm? And then the final question we say to ourselves is, how do we stand firm? We want Paul to show us how we are to do this. The first thing that we see is we do this in our attitude. And our attitude is described in one little word. Thus. We stand firm thus in the Lord. Now, you remember how we said, yet again, that when you see a therefore, you look back to see what the therefore is showing. When you see a thus, you look forward to see what is going to be described. And so we stand firm in our attitude in this way. We stand firm first by being ready. Paul is using military language here when he says stand firm. We are being watchful. We are standing at our post. And we stand at our post regardless of the pressure to abandon it. Paul has described that for us in his own life. You remember in chapter 1, verse 16. It said that he stood firm. He was put here for the defense of the gospel. He could have easily abandoned the gospel to the pressures that were all around him. But he didn't. He stood firm. He was put. But also we see the thus playing itself out over the next six or seven verses that we'll look at more closely in weeks to come. But just very quickly, look at them with me. The first thing that we must do to stand firm is we must be united. We must have harmony. Because what's the very first thing that Paul says after he says stand firm? He says, I entreat the two people that are fighting. Please, don't. And you, over there on the side, help them not to fight anymore. Bring harmony to the church. Paul's not exactly going to be a popular preacher here, right? One of the worst things you can do from the pulpit is call somebody out by name in their sin. He goes right off and does it. And he breaks maybe one of the corollary cardinal rules for a man, which is he calls a woman out by name. Two of them. But he does it for a reason. It's because it's symptomatic of what could happen and could envelop the church and the church would not stand firm. He says, in order to stand firm, we must be united. There must be harmony. But there must be more than harmony. There must also be humility. 
we are to, in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Not in ourselves, not in our gifts, not in our abilities. We are to rejoice in the Lord. If we're going to stand firm, we must stand firm with harmony and with humility. But then we must have one other thing. We must have contentment. Look at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but merely let your requests be known to God. You see, part of standing firm, part of being together, is being content with our lot. Not looking over and saying, well, I wish my marriage was like theirs. I wish my house was like his. I wish my Bible memorization ability was like theirs. No, Paul says, work in harmony. Work in humility. Work in contentment. This is how we stand firm. But it's not just what Paul has laid out in the future. He has another little phrase that we shouldn't skip over. We must have a reliance upon God if we are to stand firm. Notice that he says we are to stand firm thus in the Lord. Now, in the Lord here is not just simply words that Paul believes he must throw in in order to be pious. No. This means that we must rely upon God Himself for our firmness, for our steadfastness, for our ability to be harmonious, humble, and content. Peter puts it this way. When he describes how the attacks of the devil will come, he tells his congregation to resist him. And the way in which you resist the devil is by being firm but by being firm in your faith. You see the difference there? By being firm in knowing that God is there, that God is sovereign, that God is your God, that God is your Father. You can resist anything if you know that God is there to be relied upon, that God fights the battles for you. And so when Peter says you must resist the devil, you have to know that everyone around you is having similar kinds of sufferings. There are the same kinds of sufferings being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. You must resist the devil. You today must resist the devil. The devil is not some makeshift mythical creature in a shiny red suit with horns and a floppy tail. The devil would like you to believe that. He'd like you to believe one of two lies, either that he's a cartoon character or that he's God and cannot be defeated. When in the reality, he is a formidable adversary that has already been defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are called, Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, to take up the whole armor of God, that we might be able to do what? To withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to do what? To stand firm. You see that? Do you want to stand firm against the wiles of the devil? Put on the armor of God. Rely upon the Lord Himself, and you will stand. How do we do this? How do we stand firm we stand firm first by cultivating a godly attitude and secondly by relying upon God. But the last and perhaps most important practical way in which we are to do this is by looking to Jesus Christ as our model. 
ask yourself these three simple questions. Was Jesus persecuted? Was Jesus tempted? Was Jesus betrayed by those who were close to him? And then ask yourself the second set of three questions. Did Jesus fall? Was Jesus insufficient? Was Jesus unstable? No, he wasn't. Jesus was not like the man that we read of here in James chapter 1 verse 8, who is unstable in all his ways. Jesus is stable in every one of his ways. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul has said to you, that you are being conformed to the image of Christ, that you are pressing on toward the goal of Christ, that you are a citizen in heaven with Christ, and look to Jesus and have not only hope, but confidence of victory. That you can stand firm. That we as Christ's church can stand firm. Because Jesus Christ is firm. Jude puts it this way in conclusion. In Jude, verse 24, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to keep you stable, and to present you blameless before the presence of God with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. 